Coming up on Tech Nation, we hear from University of Pennsylvania neurologist Dr. Sarah Manning Peskin. It turns out very little can change a lot. She's here today with A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. Then we keep hearing about the global supply chain, how ships carrying goods are held offshore, how truckers are intentionally barricading global transit points. But could emerging technology change all that? Dartmouth professor Richard Devaney tells us that these new technologies are global game changers. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2012, I interviewed Brown University neuroscientist Seth Horowitz. He's the author of The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. I mentioned to him a recent television commercial which featured a ringing telephone, and we all got up to answer it. Was this his intention? Of course. What happens is when you put an environmental signal into something that you're not expecting, you're not going to be necessarily paying attention to the television. You will suddenly shift your attention to what is normally the, the source of that signal. So if you hear a telephone on television, you will look for your telephone. Uh, it's sort of like a friend of mine saying that he really wished that musicians would stop putting police sirens in their tracks because it was making him all paranoid. He's listening to his music and all of a sudden... There's a siren coming down the street. Why? It's about what you think of as normal uh, signal placement in your environment. A telephone is not supposed to be on the screen. It's supposed to be in your pocket, or if you're my age, it's supposed to be on the desk attached by a cord. So it's just a matter of shifting your attention to get you to pay attention. Oh, here's a product in your pocket, and yet we've shown it to you somewhere else. So I have to say that easily, you know, 25%, if not more, of the commercial went by before we realized that. <laughs> this is why sometimes commercials are not really laid out properly. It's like, oh, we have something that will get someone's attention, but they don't think the next steps, like, where is their attention going? So if this was an ad for a telephone, very nice, but you're not looking at the screen. It doesn't really Actually, do I don't even know what it was an ad for, but it tricked this, us several times in a row. Yeah. Same, same thing. This is the problem of using sound in advertising. It's badly handled for the most part. I have a sound design company, and this is what we've been trying to get the word out. Use sound properly or don't use it at all. And unfortunately, most people just don't use it at all. Now, let's talk about Neuropop. You co-founded it. One of the things you do is sonic branding. Give us an example of sonic branding. I mean, the, the telephone ringing was the, well, let me get your attention right now. That's not sonic branding. No. The idea of sonic branding is the idea of identity. My background is in auditory neuroscience, and my partner, Lance Massey, is a composer. And he came up with the T-Mobile ringtone, that da-da-da-da-da. And that came up because he wanted to know how can we really get somebody's attention and lock this is only the T-Mobile sound. And not to do advertising for them, but the idea that I told him was you have to leave psychophysics, how the brain takes the world, from out the, the, the world out there and puts it in your brain. Sonic branding is coming up with a sound that locks your identification of something, an emotional response, an object, a beloved phone or a piece of equipment, in with all these psychological factors. So most people just make a sound and think, okay, I have played that sound 500 times 
when I'm uh, showing you a picture of um, this new car, you will therefore identify this sound with that car. Unfortunately, if you do sound wrong, it's very irritating. Or it's just too complicated, and you'll go, was that a bad soundtrack or something like that? It doesn't use the proper psychological principles. So the way we started with sonic branding was Lance called me one night just after I finished my PhD and said, what's psychophysics? And first I had to explain there's no dash. It's not psycho and physics. It's just mapping the outside world onto your brain. And the best way to do it is to take multiple senses and stack them up. So he was saying, well, I have a visual logo, and it's these little squares that went, I think it was gray, 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 pink, gray. And I said, well, if you make a sound pattern that matches the visual pattern, people will lock onto that. And so he came up with ba 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 to match the visual, and it became one of the two best-known audio logos of all time. The other one being Walter was always um, an Intel logo, ba 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 Yeah. What other kind of things can you think of that you are instantly identified with the sound? Old jingles. If you're trying to come up with a sound that identifies an object, it's much more complicated. It has to be short. It has to get a response very quickly. That's unique to that item. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with former Brown University researcher and neuroscientist Seth Horowitz. He's the author of The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Sarah Manning Peskin, a professor of clinical neurology at the University of Pennsylvania and author of A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. Then, a major new wave in global manufacturing, which just hasn't gotten here quite yet. Hence, our current problems with the global supply chain. Dartmouth professor Richard Devaney tells us to prepare for an epic change in global trade. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Sarah Manning Peskin. Sarah, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks so much, Mur. I'm so excited to, uh, to be with you. Medical treatments are often thought, I think, by the general public as magic. You know, if someone, if a doctor says you have a problem, we say, do you have a pill for that? You know, most people don't think in terms that that pill or whatever it is might be replacing a molecule that we're missing, increasing a molecule that's low or lowering a molecule that's high. I don't think they think in those terms. I think they might have heard something, but it sounds to me, it feels to me more like it's magic, but it's not, is it? It's not most of the time. Yeah. Oh, so, some of the time there are medications where we really don't know how they work, and then it uh, it sort of is a black box. But it works. It works. Yeah. But you're exactly right, and that's what I tried to capture is uh, actually the problems in our brain. Many times can be distilled down to a problem in a particular molecule, and I divided them into buckets of uh, of uh, mutants, rebels, 
invaders and evaders. And all of the stories that I wrote about are fall into one of those buckets. Before we go into those four types, let's just talk about what is a molecule? I mean, is it different from our cells that have our DNA? Yeah, it's a great question. So a molecule is just a bunch of atoms that are connected. So atoms are hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. If you stick them together, you get a molecule. Oh, no, the the periodic table, the periodic table. Exactly. And, and I still can't pass the test. I'm. <laughs> well, the, the easier way to think about it is just if you think of Lego blocks that you would click together into some structure, you could figure out there are infinite ways you could put a bunch of Lego blocks together. And that's essentially the same thing. It's just a bunch of atoms stuck together instead of a bunch of Lego blocks stuck together. So an atom you could sort of think of as the smallest unit. And then you have clicked together a bunch of atoms and you get a molecule. Then there's lots and lots of molecules in a cell. And then you have tons of cells in your body. So if you think about in size, the biggest thing is your body. You're made of lots of cells, which are made of molecules, which are made of atoms. Now let's get to the first type. Let's start with mutants. Who are they? So the mutants are altered DNA. So these are people, if you think of your DNA as your genetic code, it's like a three-dimensional computer code. And these are people who have a mutation. So one of the numbers or letters, however you want to think about it, in their DNA is changed. And it turns out that can have catastrophic effects. It's so uh, one of the stories that uh, we talk about is about something like Huntington's disease. And it turns out for the longest time, people had no idea what caused Huntington's disease. They didn't know where the gene was that caused it. And then this woman, Nancy Wexler, really opened the door for figuring it out and re- essentially revolutionized the field of genetics. She was a, a Fulbright scholar and she was on vacation in Europe and her dad called her and said, why don't you come home for my birthday? And she said, that was a little bit unusual. He doesn't usually care about his birthday that much. She came home and he ended up telling her that her mom had Huntington's disease. And at the time she was about to start graduate school in psychology and she decides to do her whole thesis on Huntington's disease and then turns her attention to finding the gene, finding the the mutant that causes the condition. And at the time she had taken, in some places it says she took one biology class in her life. Her sister who I spoke with said, I don't think she'd even taken a single biology class, but yet she figures it out. She brings together these scientists who work together with her and she figures out the, the genetic cause of Huntington's disease and the technology that she discovered goes on to revolutionize genetics and thousands of other disease-causing genes were, were found using her discovery. And she actually didn't end up taking the test that she helped to figure out uh, or helped to design. And uh, she sort of said, time will tell. And people started seeing that her movements were changing. And very recently in the New York Times, she gave an interview talking about that it turned out she did inherit that genetic change and and she does have the disease. Now let's talk about rebels. Who are the rebels? So the rebels are are protein changes or dangerous proteins. If you think about uh, in your body, you have your genetic code, which is your DNA, but it turns out your DNA doesn't do that much. And uh, it's really the proteins that we build according to the directions in our DNA that are the most active. So proteins are really the, the workhorse of our cells. But it turns out they can also sometimes take aim at our minds. And so these are conditions uh, where proteins actually destroy our ability to think straight. 
Uh, in particular, I read about one uh, where you actually create molecules that are supposed to protect you from invaders, and instead they end up attacking your brain. And uh, these are just dramatic conditions that cause people to hallucinate, to have whole body contractions or whole body stiffening that can almost sever off their tongue. Uh, they're just these dramatic, rapidly progressive conditions that turn out actually in many cases to have cures if we can identify them. Okay, now invaders, who are they? And the invaders are molecules that are in our brain that aren't supposed to be there. And the best example is medications. We, a, a, an enormous percentage of us take prescribed medications, and we often don't think about what effect they're having on our personality and our cognition. And we develop our entire life story without thinking about how these medications change who we are. So there's a, a theory that some folks have had that Abraham Lincoln actually uh, had mercury toxicity and that it caused personality changes for him. And so that's an example of a, uh, an invader that's gotten some, some press because of its historical uh, relevance. And what kind of personality changes are we talking about? So it turns out that mercury poisoning can cause people to be aggressive. It can cause people to sort of ping pong between being very happy and very sad. It can cause people to be very somnolent. It can really create a different person. I always thought of Abraham Lincoln as, well, because I always saw still portraits of him. Let's say he never said anything to me. But um, I always thought he was very calm and let everybody else talk. And then he was a man of few words. So that is the image that we have of him. But I think that still portrait of him is exactly how I imagine him as well. But there are other contemporaries of his that actually talked about him being a little bit uh, sort of having a bit of a temper at times. And there are accounts of him during the, the Franklin Douglas debate of almost strangling someone who was on the podium with him. And there's a question of whether... You know, could those types of examples been related to use of mercury as what he thought was a medication? Now, finally, we get to evaders. Who are they? So those are molecules that are supposed to be in the brain, but are conspicuously absent. And the best example is vitamins. We don't often think about vitamin deficiencies uh, now because usually our flour and our food is fortified with vitamins. And so they're relatively rare, at least in the in the U.S., but they used to be extraordinarily common. In particular, in the, in the early 1900s in the southeastern U.S., there was this huge epidemic of a condition called pellagra that caused a, a disfiguring rash, and it caused a dementia, and it caused an upset stomach, and thousands of people were uh, dying from it. And nobody could figure out what was causing it. And then came this guy, Joseph Goldberger. And he was this sort of hero. He uh, had, was born at the foot of the Carpathian Mountains, ended up uh, coming to the U.S. speaking no English, works his way up to uh, being a public health officer, and ended up contracting typhoid and yellow fever and typhus over the course of his job. The government says, hey, you know, why don't you figure out this pellagra problem for us? So he essentially challenges this prevailing idea that the disease was infectious. And it turns out he what he figured out, sort of stomach churning experiments uh, that he figured out it was actually caused by a, a vitamin deficiency. <laughs> that's, 
<laughs> stomach churning. Yeah, we got a couple of stomach churning things going on in this book. I don't think we'll mention them all. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure, for sure. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Sarah Manning Peskin. She's an assistant professor of clinical neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Peskin now works both in the Penn Memory Center and the Penn Frontotemporal Dementia Center. Her book is A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. Now, you would underestimate this book if you thought this was one case study after another. The patient comes in, displaying strange behavior. You try this, you try that, and then the patient goes home, you know, or doesn't. But there are so many things woven into the fabric of this book. As you can almost tell by listening to you earlier here in the interview, there's the process of science, and science does not happen on the spot. It takes years and decades and multiple scientists going through this. Let's, one example, let's talk about Carew. Yeah, so Carew was this wild disease that is somewhat esoteric. It appeared in Papua New Guinea in this kind of hidden uh, region. And it was discovered by this guy, Vincent Zegas, who went there as a public health officer. He lived there for several years before he even heard of it. And then he had this colleague who was drunk one night and said, you know, have you heard of this strange disease? I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you sometime. And ends up taking him really into the bush. And he starts to witness this condition where mostly women and children very quickly start to become giddy, lose their language, lose their balance. And then very quickly, they, they were dying. And the the disease was so horrible that actually the they were having a problem where the men in the tribe didn't have enough people to marry. The tribe was gonna would have died out because women and children were just dying in, in droves. And no one could figure out what was happening. And Zegas ended up meeting up with a scientist and actually looking at these brains under a microscope and they still can't really figure out anything that's wrong. And they take the pieces of the brain, send them off to, to another scientist who looks at them under, under a microscope and says, well, it's kind of similar to this other disease that was discovered some time ago. And uh, then they uh, also do an exhibit with these slides. And this veterinarian says, well, that looks really similar to this disease that I've been studying in sheep. And it turns out the disease is caused by proteins that are toxic. And essentially, you have one or a handful of proteins that are folded in a toxic shape. And then they basically recruit followers. And they cause all these other proteins throughout the brain to misfold. And that's what causes the disease. And the remarkable thing about Kuru is that the way that it was transmitted was actually that in this tribe in Papua New Guinea, people would eat the brains of these women and children who had died. That was part Part of their custom. And it turns out in consuming the brains that actually perpetuated the, the infection. So it was a protein, but it was also an infection and it was transmitted by eating the brains of people who had died from the disease. Eventually they figured that out and, and their disease doesn't really happen anymore. Well, yet another example of very in interesting things that are described in your book, including how gentlemen say hello to each other in Papua New Guinea. We're not <laughs> going to go into that on air, uh, but uh, uh, it's really it's really fascinating science, and it describes how you know it's just like first this guy does this, and then he finds this other person, and that person is doing that, and finds this, and then she looks at this. So it it's exactly how it happens. Another element that I very much appreciated was that 
very often scientists have inklings or, or see evidence of early conditions or early uh, indicators that w- they've observed something, but then nobody, you know, understands it. Nobody, every, they're ignored for decades, if not a century. Um, for example, there's a Parisian chemist who lived in the 1800s whose discoveries made no sense, a near-death Swiss scientist also in the 1800s who discovered some stringy material. What did each unknowingly discover, and why did science take so long? So it turns out that in the mid-1800s, there was a Swiss doctor who started looking at pus. And there was a hospital that was nearby his laboratory, and he would go to the hospital and collect old bandages, and he would scrape the pus into these beakers, and he would look at the the pus under a microscope. And it turns out when he treated it, he actually found this stringy substance that he couldn't see anywhere in the literature that anyone had ever seen it before. So he evaluates it, he describes it, and he comes up with this 20-page, very dry publication that goes out into into the world, doesn't get that much response. Uh, If anything, it gets more criticism than compliments, where people think that it was a contaminant, uh, or maybe he actually was uh, actually purposely contaminating his experiments. And the substance kind of sits by the wayside for about 80 years or so. No one thinks that it's particularly important. And then in the 1940s, this guy, Dr. Oswald Avery, who was this Canadian bacteriologist, was working on a totally separate project looking at bacteria. And he had this neat setup where certain populations of bacteria could teach other bacteria a a particular skill. And he thought that the whole thing happened because of proteins. But it turns out when he got rid of all the proteins, the experiment still worked. So that wasn't what was making it happen. And then he got rid of all the, the stringy substance that uh, this Swiss doctor had discovered a long time ago. And when he did that, it turns out the experiment stopped working. And so what he realized, actually, that it wasn't proteins all along that had allowed bacteria to teach each other skills. It was DNA. And that was how we first learned that DNA is actually the molecule of heredity, that that's what makes our, us look like our parents. And the stringy stuff was DNA. So that stringy stuff was actually was DNA, but no one really cared much about it for over half a century. And you asked about that Parisian scientist whose name was, was Forcroy. And it turned out that he was a, a scientist working in the, the heat of the French Revolution. So he's sort of toiling away in his laboratory as the revolution's going on outside his window. And he starts looking at different animal parts. And he finds that he can actually extract three different substances from different parts of different kinds of animals. And he calls them albumin, which we now know is what makes egg whites white, fibrin, and gelatin. And even though these substances are all quite different in terms of how they look and how they feel, it turns out that they all have nitrogen. And this is a magnificent discovery, but it goes largely sort of unrecognized. And Forcoy himself ends up going on to uh, do other work. He establishes the metric system that we still use. He expands the periodic table. And then he has this whirlwind career and drops dead at age 45 with his demise rumored to be hastened by this shame of not getting a promotion that he had wanted. And the idea of this nitrogen-containing substance kind of falls by the wayside for a long time until about half a century later, this Dutch researcher named Mulder 
sort of picks up where Fourcroy left off. And he kind of recreates Mulder's experiments, and he also extracts a similar substance from wheat. And he finds that not only do the, all these things contain nitrogen, but they actually all contain oxygen, hydrogen, carbon. So they all have kind of very similar atoms, and it's about in the same ratio. So he starts to think that actually all these different kinds of things and different kinds of animals, different plants, somehow they all contain the same substance. So he writes to his mentor, uh, uh, this guy, Jacob Barzelius, and says, hey, you know, what's, what's up with this? All of these things I'm looking at seem to be made of the same thing, even though they look pretty different. And Barzelius says, oh, my gosh, we'll call that stuff protein, uh, which means in the lead. It's from the Greek. And, uh, and that's how we got this name protein. And at that time, they actually thought that proteins were sort of the original substance of life and that they originated in plants and then plant eating animals ate them and then carnivores ate them and that that's how this phenomenon evolved. So they didn't know that we have DNA and then RNA reads the DNA and produces a protein constantly, 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 <laughs> all the time. Right. That whole concept was totally unknown to them. Started with the protein because we got so many proteins and uh, yeah, and and ignore the stringy material. Yeah. So <laughs> it all. This is science. This is science. Many pieces to the puzzle, and sometimes they seem like they don't fit in. There's just, there's a lot there. Now, I want people to understand sort of where you come from. You describe yourself as a dementia doctor. Um, you, you write, today I spend most days watching my patients slowly disappear. And that obviously includes Alzheimer's. But what other conditions does it include? So a lot of the, the conditions I treat are a little bit different than Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, so some of them are frontotemporal dementia uh, was one of them. And that's a condition where the front of the brain and the sides of the brain tend to get smaller. And it causes people to have difficulty with language. There are some times where people will have difficulty understanding what objects do. So you might hand them a can opener and they sort of play with it and they can't figure out what the function is. Or they might go to the grocery store and you might say, could you go pick out some milk? And they might say, well, what is milk? Or they might have difficulty producing language or they know what they want to say, but they can't get their mouth to make the right shapes to make the sounds that we all make very easily. They also might have changes in behavior. So some of them will do outlandish things like buy, you know, uh, a hundred DVDs. And so their, their wife comes home one day or their husband comes home one day and suddenly there's a hundred DVDs sitting in the, the driveway. And these are people who formerly would never have made these decisions or uh, eat pizza until they've gained a you know, hundred pounds or uh, order you know thousands of dollars of some uh, eccentric snack from some foreign country to give to their colleagues or speed, uh, you know, like a hundred mile, miles an hour on the highway when they used to be very conservative. So they have these wild behavior changes. So that, that's one of the conditions that I see. And then uh, other conditions are like Lewy body disease. And that's a condition that often causes people to have hallucinations. So you'll have people who come in and say, you know, I look outside and I, I always think I see a bear. And it turns out, it, you know, it's a tree stump. Uh, or I wake up in the morning and I see a person sitting at the end of my bed and I know they're not real, but I, I do see them and they look very clear to me. Uh, and then there are things like uh, there's a condition called cortical basal syndrome where people will come and say, you know, I've had progressive difficulty using the left side of my body. And it's the left side of my body has just gotten so stiff 
uh, or people with other conditions where they have double vision and they have just very uh, uh, dramatic falls when they used to be very stable people. So those are the types of more unusual uh, conditions that we see in our clinic. I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Manning Peskin, the author of A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of TechNation are available on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, new technologies are changing global manufacturing and global supply change. Just not quite yet. Dartmouth professor Richard Devaney gives us the big picture. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Manning Peskin, the author of A Molecule Away from Madness Tales of the Hijacked Brain. And I know that you invite your patients to participate in clinical trials. Tell us about that. So there's this idea, I think, that this romanticized idea that we're going to find a single cure for dementia. And that, that is simply, it's impossible. And actually, the cure for dementia is going to be actually an arsenal of medications that's each tailored to every individual's particular molecular problems in their brain. And the way we're going to get there is through research. So when someone comes into our clinic, they describe what life looks like for them. What does it look like when they try to drive? What does it look like when they try to grocery shop? What does it look like when they talk to their partner about something emotional? And then our job is to try to figure out, listening to them, using brain games, essentially, taking pictures of their brain, like MRIs. Uh, Our job is to figure out at a molecular level, under a microscope, what's happening in this person's brain? What do we think is actually the molecule that's causing their problem? 
And once we get to an answer for that question, then what we could do is enroll them in, in a research study. And using medications, we can try to figure out, can we actually change the course of their, of their lives using medications that are targeted at particular molecules? And so ultimately, what we're doing is trying to figure out treatments for multiple different kinds of dementia. Now, applicable to us all, you write, our brains have become our Achilles heel. I was interested that you wrote, have become. Is it more so today than it was before? It's a great question. I think it's more that we now recognize it a lot more than we did years ago. So even Alzheimer's disease before it was just called you know, hardening of the arteries. That's what people thought it was called. It wasn't until Dr. Alzheimer looked under a microscope at someone with this condition and saw these unusual structures in their brain. And we now know that is Alzheimer's disease. So I think our understanding of the molecular basis of these disease has grown so much in these past years. Well, thank you so much, I, Sarah. The, lots and lots of stories. I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you so much for having me, Mara. This is such a treat. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Manning Peskin. Her book is A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. It's published by W.W. Norton. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Many people never heard of the term global supply chain until recently. It means ships carrying goods are held offshore and truckers intentionally barricading global transit points, while the impact on our lives is significant. Believe it or not, there's emerging technology that will be changing this picture. In this influential 2018 Tech Nation interview, Dartmouth professor Richard Devaney tells us that these new technologies are nothing short of global game changers. I can imagine Tech Nation listeners out there thinking, why do I want to hear about changes in global manufacturing techniques? But think about the automobile. In the beginning, they built one car at a time, making them very expensive. And then Henry Ford created the automobile assembly line. Cars became cheaper. Almost anyone could buy a car. And America as we know it was changed forever. Richard Devaney is the author of The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. Yeah, Moira, that's exactly right. And if you go back to that same time period that you're, you were just talking about, it wasn't just the affordability of cars that changed. Just think about how work changed. People used to be farmers. Now they had to go to factories to work. That caused unionization. It caused urbanization. So big cities grew up around the, the plants. It had a ripple effect to many things that changed society radically. So we're on the verge of the same kind of change, and I don't think people recognize it yet. You know, it's probably like uh, 1890 in, in, in ancient history terms. Well, I think what's interesting here is that the Model T certainly changed America. And mm -hmm. now these technologies, and the one technology we'll be talking about uh, in particular, these technologies are changing the world. Yes, there's no question about it. And even the technology that uh, we're going to talk about, 3D printing and more generally additive manufacturing, 
These are going to change whether or not we source in foreign places or, and whether we build in foreign places, whether or not we have long supply chains. And, and a lot of those things are going to disappear with 3D printing because it's going to be a machine that prints from the bottom up the entire product. Uh, so we don't have to buy components and so forth. And we're working our way towards an assemblyless world. Well, that's good. Assembly-less world. Why don't we say assembly-free world? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, a lot of people will find that they have been freed up from what is essentially repetitive, boring work that forces you to join a union. And one of the things that excites people about this is the possibility of much greater freedom in their work lives. Uh, now, before yeah. we go further, you know, and here we are on the radio, we need to mm -hmm. describe 3D printing. And we have listeners out there sure. who have never seen one. And so we, we need to talk about it sort of in a hold-it-in-your-hand sense. What are we talking about here? Okay. 3D printing is not really just one technology. There's about nine or ten of them. And new ones are coming out all the time. But what I thought I'd do is just talk about the two most important methods that are getting the most play and that have, you know, almost everything else building off of. Uh, the first method is a method called FDM. And th this is a method in which a nozzle sprays down a plastic, uh, just like it was printing a letter, and then it sprays down another layer and another layer, and then another layer, or I shouldn't say sprayed, it kind of squeezes it out of the nozzle, like you were using a, a tube of frosting um, uh, when you're baking a cake, or, or rather when you're decorating a cake. And it keeps going until it builds up. The other type is called SLA, and this is a process where the layers are not made out of plastics, they're made out of a photosensitive resins. In other words, a kind of plastic which when exposed to light gets hard. And so they have a like a vat of this resin. And which is a liquid at that point or a very uh, viscous yes, that's liquid. Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, a good point. I should have mentioned that. Uh, and then it flashes light on the bottom end of it and the light forms a layer which is a very thin layer that's the shape of the object at that spot, the, the part, let's say you're making. And then the object uh, or part moves up a little bit, a new layer of resin comes in underneath it, and then the light flashes again and it hardens it. And so it does that hundreds of times until it builds up an object and it's pulled out of this viscous liquid vat. Uh, that method has the advantage of being able to make more intricate designs. Uh, but it's also very expensive compared to uh, FDM, and it only works with parts that can be made out of uh, resins, uh, which many resins have like these nasty habits of, for example, absorbing fluid. So if you drop your cell phone in a sink, it's cooked. It becomes a sponge. And it also has the nasty habit of sometimes uh, melting when you put it in the sun. So if you put your cell phone on uh, a resin-based cell phone on the dashboard of your car, 
it becomes part of the dashboard. Ooh. And uh, I remember that from years ago because I had a Japanese-made radio that was made out of these resins, not by 3D printing, but and I left it on the dashboard of my father's car, and it melted right into his brand-new car. <laughs> and, my God, I learned the meaning <laughs> of uh, messing up. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you know, your, your father didn't buy that it was a feature. but. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He, yeah. he he didn't think it was a positive, and uh, you know, and b before he passed away a few years ago, uh, now we have all these things we put on the dashboards of the car, and uh, uh, stuck there. And I said, "You see that? I did this like thirty years ago." You, you should. <laughs> you were. I was you way were ahead advanced. of the time. You were way <laughs> yeah, ahead of exactly. the curve. Way ahead of I the curve. I was way ahead of the curve. Well, I have to tell you that the first thing that I think people are enlightened about is, oh, there's kind of like goop in this, whether it's FDM or SLA. Mm -hmm. It's like you're building up things layer by layer in two different yep. processes. And so they're objects that we can envision layer by layer. So not everything mm -hmm. in the world is going to be produced by a 3D printer. You know, you can't make a, a book out of a 3D printer, you know. So, so there are things no. that, objects that, that lend themselves to this, uh, and they're yes. made out of certain materials at this point in time. That's right. And what's exciting is, is that there's a new set of materials uh, coming online, mainly in metals and alloys and composites. So the variety of things that you can make is exploding. And so metal powders get fused together or get bound together so that they form objects. And um, uh, this is about to turn into the mass manufacturing that we all hoped it would. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Richard Devaney. He's a professor of strategy at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and you may know him from his numerous international awards, including the 2018 Visionary Thought Leader of the Decade Award from the Women's Economic Forum. He's spoken at the World Economic Forum Summit in Davos and written numerous books, starting with his first, Hypercompetition. He's here today with the Pan-Industrial Revolution, how new manufacturing titans will transform the world. You're talking mass manufacturing, but we've had a lot of hype over the last few years about 3D printers, and they're kind of like the toys of the maker world. And right. it's like we're not talking about these simple little toys, right? No, no. Uh, that's the part that's... Uh uh, confusing to people, I think, because most people think of it as, you know, one step up from those. You remember the little bake ovens where you oh, put yeah, something in plastic in it and you put it in the light bulb, hardened it up. And, yeah. And, uh, so most people think of these things as one step above those uh, those bake ovens. And uh, in fact, uh, one of the uh, companies tried uh, to reintroduce uh, those uh, those ovens, and I forgot what the brand name is, but they revived the old brand name as well. It, it didn't sell so well because it had a little problem of burning kids' hands. Um, in the old days, so, we didn't mind. Yeah, in the, exactly. We weren't my so careful. Were, I, oh, Dad, uh, Mom, 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 I burnt my hands. She said, well, uh, what do I do? And she said, don't do that again. <laughs> there you Very go. Very old joke. Very Any old joke. would be proud of me. <laughs> and, uh, but with these new machines, we're, we're not talking about $200 
or even 3,000. We're starting at talking around 150,000 up to multiple millions of dollars. And they're capable of spitting out hundreds of thousands uh, of a given item uh, at less than the cost of traditional manufacturing. So Hewlett Packard has a new machine called the, uh, it uses a technology called multi-jet fusion, MJF. And basically what it does is it has a bunch of tiny little nozzles uh, on a bar that rolls across the top of a powder base. And it sprays onto it some kind of uh, liquids that help absorb uh, the heat from uh, an infrared uh, uh, lamp. And it, they spray on a, def, a liquid that does detailing, which makes nice crisp edges so that it doesn't bleed into the rest of the, and you get some kind of fuzzy mess surface. And this machine uh, is capable already at making 150,000 copies of something uh, at less than the traditional manufacturing process with plastics. And HP just announced that they've adapted the technology to include metal-based powders. And the, uh, and the next step is to have one machine which is able to um, work with both metals and plastics at the same time. And at that point, you get to be able to build entire pro products, you know, the Parts that are plastic that you, uh, that you want can be built. Uh, you can regulate the uh, amount of uh, pores you know, uh, inside the plastics and the metal to determine its strength um, and uh, water absorbency and uh, all sorts of things like that. Um, so the only things left is the electronics uh, that you'd put into mo most products today. You, you know, you can't buy a doll. Uh, without uh, without some kind of electronics in it. And um, uh, so the electronics are the last thing left, but there's other companies that are making it so that with a little ink jet, uh, like needles, where you can put down conductive metals, these metals that carry electricity, and they become wires, and you can put them into the body of the... Uh, uh, product, let's say it's a cell phone, it'll go in the into the hard... Plastic and uh, metal, yeah. Yeah. Right in. And, uh, right in. And, and on the inside surfaces, you can print uh, right now relatively, um, uh, you know, low-scale circuits, but that works out okay for an awful lot of electronic equipment. And they're working on a high-definition one at, at, at this company called Optimec uh, so that they're going to be able to actually just print the chip at the same time they print the, the item. And so chip manufacturers are going to disappear. And when you look at it, the cell phone uh, will now have uh, the, uh, a whole lot of space in it. So what could you do with that space? Well, you could take it out and miniaturize that cell phone so that it's a tiny little dot, um, all with 3D printing. Uh, or you could add new functionality to it. So pack in all kinds of electronics that are not 3D printed and connect them up. 
uh, you could uh, uh, do a combination of the two, of miniaturization and new capabilities. You can turn your cell phone into a uh, supercomputer. Uh, because I was talking to people at IBM, and uh, uh, and they were telling me that uh, Ginny Romady set uh, a goal for them to reduce the size of the Watson to a cell phone. And they're well on the way, because it used to be like walls and walls of servers made up these uh, uh, supercomputers. And... Uh, uh, and now it's like two racks of servers, and they're working their way down to one server fairly soon. Um, and then after that, they can keep playing. It's like the nature of uh, smaller, faster, uh, cheaper of evolution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, uh, exactly right. And so, everybody can walk around with a Watson Which inside is, their cell the phone. That's the big computer that played Jeopardy or what played chess. Isn't that what Watson uh, he, he, I can't remember which one it was, but it was beating humans at something. <laughs> yeah. and, but it's more... But, exactly. Uh, and, 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 the, uh, and the humans didn't like it. <laughs> uh, um, now we'll be uh, able to I'll, see I'll, it by the time they're done. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an example of what that kind of computing power does. It allows for artificial intelligence. And so Watson is being programmed to diagnose various diseases. And they began with cancer. And they would take all of the cancer studies ever done in the world, um, match it up with your results from various tests, diagnose what kind of cancer you probably have, and then come up with the exact right um, cocktail to, to serve the person or other recommendations like radiation and so forth. And they tested it against groups of individual doctors that were leading doctors in oncology. And what Watson was about 40% more effective than the people. For those course, things that are computer intensive and data intensive, you just can't beat a computer. Right. And then if you 3D print it, it allows you to miniaturize it down to the point where uh, it's a cell phone. The um, uh, uh, Another interesting development that it's not commercially available yet, but uh, I've seen people with them, um, especially people making them, and that is they 3D print the tattoo directly onto your skin, and it's actually an electric circuit. And just like out of Blade Runner, I don't know if you remember the scene where he rips the electronics out of his out from underneath his skin on his on his arm. This is becoming uh, a realistic thing. And you know, you press the buttons, you make your cell phone call, it monitors your body temperature and so forth. It'll call the uh, 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 fire department if it senses smoke around you. Uh, oh, so by uh, tattoo, you're saying so you're forth. embedding electronics into your skin, underneath your skin. Yes, exactly. Before we go any further, I was fascinated. Here you are normally talking to lots of CEOs and heads of research and, you know, hey, what are you working on? And they tell you. But now with this, they're going, well, maybe we don't want to tell you what we're doing. You go to the manufacturers and you say, well, who are you selling to? And big wall of silence. What is all the silence about? Is that typical? 
Uh, well, it's becoming less so, but uh, I, you know, I had embarrassing moments where I had panels in front of major CEO audiences run by uh, people whose names you would recognize, and I would ask them uh, about their 3D printing, and nobody said a word for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> words, words, and words, was, words, words, nothing. Uh, yeah, uh, just, uh, and, and in the meantime, I know, because I've talked to people in their companies, that one of them actually makes printers. <laughs> Another one was using them in uh, its contract manufacturing and so forth. And so I finally, at the 45 minutes, I blurted out, I, I said, you people either aren't telling the truth or... You better go and find out what's going on in your organizations because I talked to so and so in Ireland and I talked to this guy over there and uh, and then I got bounced. That was it. <laughs> they didn't. They never invited me again back. Um, but I I couldn't I couldn't handle it. I think there's a bunch of reasons why this is occurring. The first is everybody knows that there's a learning curve here. And the first one who learns how to use it gets better and better and better, faster and faster and faster than the competitors. So they don't want to get people started too soon. They want to delay what people think. So, so uh, um, in addition to that, I, I think there's uh, another reason uh, beyond secrecy for that reason. Uh, they keep a secret because they're afraid the customer isn't going to like it. Uh, so, for example, if you bought a BMW or a Mercedes that is 85% plastic parts, you'd be saying to yourself, well, what, what, what the heck is this? You know, I want to, I paid for a car that has actually some metal in it, right? <laughs> um, and uh, I, I would like to see it uh, better than that. Uh, uh, in addition, they don't want to rile up if they have strong unions. Um, they don't want to rile them up uh, because, you know, it means a lot of oh, job changes. Oh, it's going to change a lot of stuff. Yeah. Right. And so they don't want people stepping in before they can produce a fait accompli by redoing factories, bringing in um, uh, these 3D printers and having those replace a lot of the manual work. Uh, and... Uh, finally, I think a lot of them don't uh, want regulators to know uh, because the regulators, they can get themselves worked up over, you know, over putting the wrong color on a tire um, in the automobile industry, for example. And uh, they, uh, of course, I'm exaggerating that, but th they don't want the regulators to step in and say, hey, wait you know, maybe these aren't as safe and we need to inspect them and approve them and, and delay the process. Um, we got a lot of reasons not to talk about it, not to tell exactly. you. Exactly. You know, the, the World Trade Organization, all of these policies about global trade, trade goes between countries and all of mm -hmm. this. And uh, we're not counting boxes on a wharf here <laughs> or an airline terminal <laughs> uh, in the cargo space. We're talking mm -hmm. about digital orders that go out over email, even referencing a specification to a file stored in the cloud, and they can produce it all over the world, wherever they have these machines. It's like, mm -hmm. well, what's the global trade? How do we work that out? We have major problems here. 
Well, I, I think it's actually not a major problem. Um, <clears throat> no more trade with China, no more trade wars, no more disruption. So I think we gain a considerable amount of uh, freedom to be and do what we want because of exactly the reasons that George Washington uh, warned us of at the beginning um, of the country when he said that we should avoid, uh, avoid uh, entanglements with European powers. And I think now it also would include Asian powers. I'm not convinced that getting entangled is a big deal. Now, now let's also look at, suppose we do get entangled, we want to have allies, um, but our major allies, Japan, Korea, Germany, Britain, uh, these are countries that now their number one trading partner is China. And when push comes to shove, uh, they're going to duck because they don't want to ruin their economy uh, in order to support American policies. How will the impact of 3D printing be felt by people, not just in the United States, but everywhere, uh, and not only in developed countries, but in emerging countries? Yeah, emerging companies are going to have uh, countries are going to have quite a problem because they usually emerge out of poverty by moving into low labor cost ma manufacturing activities, and those activities are going to be um, automated to such a level, and then the next level of all, uh, of you know technological uh, products will also be automated. And so these emerging economies are going to be stuck in the phase of being raw material suppliers. And my fear is, is, that, is that that's going to end up being a, uh, a disaster for instability. Um, and in China, as they lose lots of uh, the same kinds of jobs, if they can't replace them fast enough, then the uh, 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 then there'll be uh, social unrest there as well. Richard, thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you come back and see us again. I'd love to. Thank you very much for the uh, uh, for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. My guest today is Dartmouth professor Richard Devaney. His book is The Pan-Industrial Revolution: How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.